The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. This morning we will begin a new Advent series looking at the reality that our King has come. That Advent, within the course of human history, is the most cataclysmic event that has ever taken place. It rivals, as it were, even the resurrection, because both important and not to pit one against the other. But what we are coming to celebrate in Advent is the the truth, the unbelievable reality that the God of the universe, conferring to his son Christ, the second person of the Trinity, conferring to him his kingdom, And saying, in order for you to establish your kingdom and to redeem those whom I have given you in the world, you have to go. That you have to leave the beauties and the glories of heaven. That you have to, as it were, the language of Philippians 2, empty yourself of those things and come and be born into the very creation that you called into existence. The unbelievable humility that it takes for Christ to come uh, and to enter in and to be displaced from his glory, uh, his place of heaven, uh, perfection with the Father, to be displaced, as it were, willingly. He says, no one takes it from me. I give it up. Uh, I come and I do this. And I imagine uh, there might have been a collective gasp in the heavenly realms when word got out that Jesus was leaving heaven and that he was going down and that he said, here's the plan of salvation. I'm going to take on human flesh and I'm going to dwell among them and I'm going to live inconspicuously for 30 years. They're not going to know who I am. Some will be presented with that truth at the inauguration of my birth, but then I'm going to live and then after a season, my ministry will become public And at the end of my public ministry, I'm going to be killed and crushed for their salvation. You can only imagine that all of the beings who had been with him from time before had thought, is there a plan B? Is there some other way for this to happen? And Jesus would have said, of course not. This is the perfection of the plan that my father and I have determined before the very foundation of the world that I must enter into time and space, that I must take on human likeness, live in the perfection of righteousness that they never could so that one day I can give to them my perfection so that they can enter into my kingdom and to be saved and live under my rule. That's what we celebrate. That's what's taking place at Advent. That's the memorial, as it were. It's fun to put up a Christmas tree. It's enjoyable to watch an old movie and to have some hot chocolate and to to sit around and to think about gifts and to put uh, maybe their stockings on the fire and uh, fireplace and uh, to debate whether gifts should be opened on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, and should they be opened one by one, or does everybody collectively dive in and everything is torn apart at one time? Those are all fun discussions to have, but they lead us away from the primary focus of what Christmas is all about. It's about the advent of a king. 
It's about the introduction and the entrance of the king into humanity and into time and space. And so we're going to be looking at that over the course of these next several weeks and on Christmas Eve and talking about these things. And this morning we're going to be using Isaiah 44 as our primary text. I will allude to Psalm 24, but we studied Psalm 24 this summer and I'll only make mention of it in a couple of places. But we'll be looking at Isaiah 44 and considering the glory of our King. Who is this King of glory? Who is this King that we come and worship? Let's ask now for God to bless our time in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we come and we thank You for Your Word. We come to it with incredible reverence, knowing that these are not the words of men, but that this is the very breathed, inspired, inerrant Word of our God. And therefore, we need You to teach us today, for this is nothing more than, than an interesting lesson. But Father, we pray that this would be something that is anchored into eternity itself, into your very heart. So speak now for your servants, your children, we listen. Amen. Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 8. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? Are you, are, and you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. The first thing we're going to consider for a moment is the kingly claim, the claim of God that he is king. How audacious, how, how, how large of a claim that is to say, I'm the king and there is no other. I am supreme in all of the universe and everything owes me allegiance. Everything is under my sovereign control. Uh, That is a massive claim. And it's one that we have to wrestle with. It's one that we need to deal with is that claim of God, the claim of Christ that he is king. Because folks, if he's not king, then nothing else really matters. 
if he's not the true ruler and sovereign over all things. And you can give your allegiance to another king. You can give your allegiance to another sovereign. You can go and live in another kingdom. But if God says, my kingdom is the true kingdom and the only kingdom in which you will find life and salvation and hope and a future, and you enter it through my way, then it is imperative for us to wrestle with his claim. And so he comes in Isaiah 44, and he builds his claim on three, three nuances. He, he says, my claim is based upon the fact that I made you, I created you. My claim is uh, the fact that I pre-exist before all things. I have no uh, other, there's no one before me. And my claim is based upon the fact that I have no rival. There actually is no other God. We'll start with the one that I listed second, and that is his pre-existence. He says in verse 6, he said, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He says, my claim is this. No one created me. No one was before me. There is no one who outdates me. I have always been. His name even saying, Yahweh, I am. That I was and I am and I always have been. And he says, I am the one, the Alpha and the Omega, I am the one who called all things into being. I pre-exist everything that's in the world. And because he pre-exists everything that's in the world, guess what? Let's bring this down uh, from a high theological uh, level and bring it right down into our living room and say this. Here's what it means. If he pre-exists against everything else, he gets to make the rules. He gets to make the rules. No one gets to come to him after him and say, I don't like your rules. He goes, well, where were you? Where did you? Did you start before me? Because if you exist, that means I created you. You're the clay, I'm the potter, Romans. Clay doesn't get to argue with potter. Clay gets to look at potter and go, I'm clay, you're potter. That's just the way it is. And so God is arguing at the very beginning that his sovereign rule begins by him saying, I made everything else. I started before everything else. And then it moves quickly into his second claim, which is because I was before all things, I preexisted all things, I called all things into being. Psalm 24 talks about that a lot, that he is the God of creation. He called all things into being. But here he says this. He says, I formed you in your womb, in your mother's womb. I formed you. You know that about God, that you were formed by him, for him, gloriously made by him, that you have no existence outside of his sovereign word, which said at whatever particular time uh, in the world of history, it said, you're going to be created and formed. That he said, you are my And the beauty of the word that he uses, you are my poema. You you are my masterpiece. I formed you intricately. The person sitting in your chair right now, I want you to hear this. You are wonderfully and masterfully, without mistake, you have been made in the image of God. Isn't that awesome to consider for a moment? That he made you. So his claim is this, hey, no one was before me. 
You can't go back and you can't argue. You can't play the mom and dad argument. Mom and dads, you know that argument, right? Kid comes to dad. Dad, can I do this? Dad says, no. Kid goes, huh, let me go to mom, see who has a little more authority in the house. And mom goes, sure. And dad goes, what just happened? Or you flip-flop. And they go, well, I'm going to start with mom. And mom says no, so I'm going to run over to dad. God's saying you don't get to play that. I started before all things. You don't get to run to anybody else. What I say goes, I get to make the rules. I'm the end and the beginning, the alpha and the omega. And then he says this, and if that's not satisfactory enough for you, I made you. You wouldn't even be here if I hadn't wonderfully formed you in your mother's womb. And because of that, you owe me absolute allegiance. You owe everything to me, your very life, what you have, all that has been given to you. It comes from me because I'm your starting point. I'm your beginning. I'm the creative thought. I'm the creative word. I am the beauty of the narrative that began and became your life and your story. He says, you see, there's, there's no one before me. I created you and I created all things you know, we talk about that as we train our children. What did God create? God created all things. Why do we want to start there teaching our children with the catechism to understand? Because he made all things, he has authority over all things. And then the, the last thing that he says here about his kingly claim is not just that he pre-exists and not just that he made us, but he says, by the way, I have no rival. Verse 7, who's like me? Who's like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let him declare what is to come and what will happen. It's basically God saying, if you don't like my rule and authority, if you want to reject that, then in order for you to reject that, what you have to be saying, underlying that rejection, is that you are as great or greater than I am. You have to stand in a position above me in order to critique me. You have to stand in a position of equal or greater prominence and power than I am for you to be able to say, I reject outright what you're saying. I am equal or greater than you. It's God inviting you if you want to reject what he says. That's fine. I'm not here to make you accept it, but I'm here to tell you this. If you want to reject what God is saying, He's inviting you into a dialogue. Anybody want that dialogue? I don't. It reminds me of Job way too much. Near the end of Job's life, when Job had complained and questioned enough, when all of his friends had helped him complain and question enough, I love the old New American Standard version of how God invites Job into a dialogue. Job, gird up your loins like a man and step outside the tent. We're going to talk. No, thank you. I'm good right where I am. I'm okay. I don't want to come out because God's saying, Job, you have to determine for yourself. It is a salient, incredible watershed moment in your life, Job. It is a watershed moment in your life, whomever is seated in your seat this morning, that you have to determine for yourself, am I God or are you? Am I the king or are you the king? Both can't be true. There can't be two monarchs. There can't be two uh, seated there. There's only one. And that's what God is coming out and saying at the very beginning. He's saying, I have no rival. There is no other God. 
I've destroyed them all. Egypt thought they had rival gods. And at the very end, when he took the firstborn, what he was saying, he was saying that the son of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh being the incarnation of Ra, the son of Pharaoh can't even stand against me. I can destroy Ra, and I have. I'll take on Baal, I'll take on Asher, I'll take on secularism, I'll take on all philosophies, all pretenders to the throne. Stand before me and see how they last. So God makes an incredible kingly, throne, or kingly claim, and he does so with great logic and great reasoning. You see, there is incredible significance to that. That the entrance of the glorious king is an event of universal significance because the whole world is his dominion. God is now saying at Advent, I, the king of the universe, am going to enter into time and space. I'm going to come and I'm going to unfurl my banner. I'm going to come and enter into this which I've created. It is a time of incredible significance in our lives. And so that's his kingly claim. So now you may be going, okay, I I get it. I'll acknowledge that he uh, is the king. I'll acknowledge that I'm not the king. So how do I come to him? How is it then that I have entrance into his presence? I've acknowledged that he's king. Uh, I'm going to now unseat myself uh, from my throne, and and I want to now come into his presence. How how do I get there? One of the things that we learn about God, because he is the Alpha and the Omega, and because he's the one who has set the rules, is we come based on his terms, not our own. We come based on his terms, not our own. And that's, again, difficult for the human heart. It doesn't resonate well deep down within me. I like to come up with my own terms. We do that in most of our negotiations, in every relationship that we're in. We negotiate terms of surrender. We negotiate terms of victory. We say, okay, I'll concede the fight, sweetheart, but here are my terms. I'm not going to lose face. Uh, I'm not fully going to say I'm sorry. Uh, I'm not going to acknowledge everything that I should acknowledge, but I'm going to acknowledge just enough because in this surrender, I still want to have some dignity. I still want to have some, some of the power uh, within this term of surrender. And by the way, married couples and just anybody in general, that's not a really good way for reconciliation to happen. But we like to bring that to God too. We like to say, okay, fine, I acknowledge you as king. Here are my terms of surrender. The guy goes, you don't have terms of surrender. I don't negotiate with you on this. Here's the basis of how you come to me. First, you have to be invited. Only the people that are invited get to come into the throne room of the king. He says it right there in the beginning of chapter 44. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb. Fear not, O Jacob. Uh, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Him creating, and he created all things, is not enough to enter into the kingdom and into the throne room of God. You have to be invited. And some of you are going, ah, this is that Reformed Presbyterian stuff that really keeps me from really wanting to be a part of this. This is stuff that annoys me. Well, it annoys me too. The problem with it is it's biblical. It says right there, I chose you. you. You get to come in because I invited you. You don't get to come in on your own merit. You don't get to come in with your own rules. You only get to come in if I invite you to come in. And part of why I don't like that and part of why it doesn't resonate with so many other hearts is I want to negotiate my own terms. 
He goes, Bill, there are no terms. Either I invite you or I don't. And it's up to me, not you. And I don't like power being taken away from me, and nor do most people. And so we wrestle with that. But I want you to hear this. Underlying that invitation, your heart should start to be warmed inside. There should be something happening within you to recognize this. You have been invited in. I've received some pretty cool invitations in my life. I've gotten to go to some pretty cool places and meet some pretty cool people and have audience with some substantial people in the world. But there was one invitation that I would never be able to get on my own. And it happened as I was driving down the road on I-77 in 1990 in November. And the Lord of the universe said, Bill, if you're ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father. He was saying, Bill, I'm inviting you in. Bill, I'm inviting you into my throne room. But you have to quit being ashamed. You have to quit all this other stuff. But Bill, I'm inviting you in. What an unbelievable moment to be able to say the king of the universe based absolutely nothing on me because what I knew about myself at that time of life, as limited as it was, I know more now of how bad my heart really was, but what I knew then was it was pretty dadgum bad. And God still said, I invite you into my presence. I want to have audience with you. I want to have relationship with you. What an incredible invitation. It trumps every other invitation you will ever get. Is that invitation. And you should want that invitation more than any invitation. And you should want that invitation for even your greatest enemy. To say, Lord, if you were willing to invite me, and I know my own heart, then I pray that you would be willing to invite my loved one, my family member, that person, these people. I want you to invite them because, God, that's where life is found. It's in your presence. And so the way that we come to the king is that we're invited, we're called to him and by him. But then we ask the question, okay, we're called and invited in, but I know this. God can't look on impurity. God can't stand. He's not going to invite filth into his throne room. So how am I who knows my own heart? How am I knowing Psalm 24? Only he with clean hands and a pure heart. How am I going to get there? Well, God uses an incredible word in verse seven or verse six. He says this, thus says the Lord, the king of Israel and his redeemer says, the way that you get to come in is I redeem you. The way that you get to come into my presence is I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to be your redeemer. And Jesus Christ was willing to enter into time and space to live perfectly the human life, that he would have clean hands and a pure heart, that he would be truly the only one who was poor in spirit, the only one who truly was hungry and thirsty for righteousness' sake, that he would do that and he would then come and he would be crushed under God's law, under God's justice, and then he would take and confer to us. And as I'm invited into the throne room, he would say, Bill, you can't enter until you're redressed. 
But you've got to take off all the filthy garments and you've got to put on my pure garments of righteousness. And he dressed me in that righteousness. He imputed it into my life. And so now I am called into the presence of the king and I am made worthy simultaneously to enter into that presence through my redeemer, Jesus Christ, who entered into the world, a king like no other king who said, in order for me to have dominion, in order for me to have the kingdom, I must first die. What other king does that? Whatever, what other monarchy does that? But you see, we enter in because we are redeemed by Christ, that we are given this pure and new heart, that we recognize that God has done it for us, that he has done this for us. And so if you're wondering today, okay, Bill, I get it. God's the king of the universe. I'm not. I'm willing to acknowledge him, and I'm praying that I would go into his entrance. How do I get there? It's through Christ. It's only through Christ. When Christ says, I'm the door, and no one enters, he's saying, I'm the door, and no one enters except through me. That I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes into the Father but by me. And again, you go, that seems so narrow-minded. Go back a few steps in the sermon. God made the rules. We didn't. We don't get to argue with him. We should just be incredibly thankful that there is a door at all. God, I can't believe, number one, that there's even a door. And number two, ah, the golden ticket that I hold makes Charlie's ticket look silly. He got to see how chocolate was made. I get to see how the universe was made. I get to walk in to a true kingdom through Christ and over his crushed body, going back into the perfections of Eden, back into a place of absolute perfection, back into a place of safety, which we're going to talk about in a moment, that I get to come and do it. And it's not by myself because I know this about Bill McCutcheon. You add me to the recipe and the recipe is messed up. So God says, I've got to remove you from the recipe. It's all me. All me. But don't we have to choose God? Yes, you do. But it says that he changes our hearts so that we will. He gives us a new chooser. He gives us a new heart. And that heart beats for him. That heart desires him. But a dead stone heart? No, never. He says, I give you a new fleshly heart, a heart that will beat for me, a heart that will desire me. What an amazing reality. And so now we see, oh, this is great. I know that there is a king and I'm not him, that I want entrance into his presence and I'm going to come at his invitation. He is calling you today, by the way. Part of the calling is an external call of someone speaking and the words of Jesus to say, come. And Jesus is now saying to you, come. And the pathway has now been presented to you through Christ, by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone. That that's how we get there. And so now we enter in, and your question is probably going to be, so what happens now? What's it like? What's life like in the kingdom? I'm glad you asked, because Isaiah answers it for us. The Lord answers it for us. He says, thus says the Lord, I formed you. Fear not, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground, and I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and the name himself by the name, and name himself by the name of Israel. The first thing that we see in his presence is there's no fear. 
There's no fear. He says, when you come into my presence, when I invite you into my presence, when I redeem you, and you're now in my presence, he says, fear not. Don't have any fear because you're in the presence of your Redeemer. You may remember the horrible story in the upstate near Spartanburg last year about the monstrous individual who had killed a number of people and there was a young woman who was chained and was in the back of a trailer, of a cargo trailer on his farm up near Spartanburg. And someone came and they heard her in there And they opened the doors and found her there still alive, but chained, knowing that her beloved had been already murdered and killed, and probably knowing other things. Can you imagine her response when those doors opened and she saw that it was law enforcement? How do you think she responded? Wondering when you'd come around. All fear had left. She celebrated. She was drawn to them. It overwhelmed her soul because she had experienced redemption and fear was removed. The monster had been destroyed, as it were. The enemy, had the one who was going against her, had been taken out. And when the enemy is taken out and you're moved from the enemy's domain and the enemy's dominion, which is what happens, we move out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And where there's the light, there is no fear. It says we don't fear. We don't have to be afraid anymore. Wouldn't that be awesome? How many of you would like to live each and every day without fear? Every one of you basically raised your hands. You know what else that means? Is currently you're living with fear. Because if that's your aspirational desire to live without fear, you're basically saying, but I I have fear. I was having breakfast over at Plantation Cafe the other morning on Thursday morning. And those of you who keep your eye on the Dow Jones Industrial Average will remember that Thursday morning wasn't a great day. Something like 600 and something points dropped out of the Dow. And there was a group of older gentlemen over there, and you would have thought that they had all been given terminal cancer, uh, whatever, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There you go. Thank you. I looked at them and said, you should be more worried about all the eggs and the bacon and the grits that you're eating uh, than you should be, because they were just freaking out. And I'm sitting at the bar by myself. I like to go over there a couple of times. A month and just be alone and listen and kind of do a social study on people. And I wanted to go over and I said, why are you so afraid of 600 points? Why is your world becoming unglued? Why is everything around you, why, why are you so fearful? It's because you staked your hope on something that can't ever give you life. When we get that diagnosis of cancer, or we get that diagnosis of some terminal illness, or we get uh, the, the hearing from a loved one that they don't love us and they're going to leave us in divorce, or our parents divorce us, or leave us, or, or something happens, we don't have to fear. We can feel it, and we should, but a deep knee-shaking, foundation-quaking fear, God says, when you come into my kingdom, you can trust my rule, that I've got you. Because here's what little I know. I was an economics uh, major in college, so I'm going to share with you some really deep insight. It's going to go down again. And then it's going to go up. Then it's going to go down. And then it's going to go up. And then it's going to go down. And it's going to keep doing that until Jesus comes back. So you can ebb and flow with it all. Or you can put your anchor into something else. And Jesus says, if you're anchored to me, you won't be afraid of all those movements within life. 
Then he says this, you come alive within the presence of the king. There's a deep satisfaction that comes when you enter into the kingdom in the presence of the king. He says, it's like me pouring water on an arid land. How do you think the dry ground is going to respond to the water? It absorbs it. It soaks it in. It it comes alive. And he says, I'm going to bless you with that refreshing, with that deep satisfaction of that deep longing that's within all of your souls, all of our souls. And then he says, I'm going to give you a flourishing and a thriving that isn't just for you, but this is a generational blessing that goes even to your children and your children's children, to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, your children, your life, you're going to flourish up. You're going to be like willow trees growing up next to streams of water that should take you back to a psalm. Blessed is the one who pursues God. Blessed is the one who has anchored himself to the Lord. For he and she are like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water that bear their fruit in their season and their leaves never never wither. For they are not like the chaff which is blown away, but they have gravitas, they have gravity, they have something about them. There is some stability. They flourish and they grow. And he said there's a permanence within that. That's the beauty of the kingdom of when we come into the presence of the king and that we are safe in the king's domain and we actually brag about being the king's children. Think about that. Isn't that what he's saying there when he says in verse 5, this one will say, I'm the Lord's. And that one will call in the name of Jacob and another's going to write it on his hand. It's saying this, Bill, don't be ashamed of me and my words in this sinful and adulterous generation. Be proud of the fact that you're a king's kid. How many of you are proud of the fact that you're a child of the king? Let folks know. Don't be ashamed of your family. I lived way too much of my life being ashamed of being the son of Bill McCutcheon. I didn't want to be a preacher's kid. I didn't want to be a part of the church. I didn't want any of that. And it brought pain, and it brought remorse, and it brought guilt, and it brought shame until God freed me from that to be able to say, I am, I am proud, not only to be Bill McCutcheon's son, but I am proud to be a son of the king. And I'm proud of what I do, and I'm proud of being able to tell people uh, about it. And if it means I need to mark my hand, then mark my hand. I'm the king's. When you go out and young people, when you go to school and your friends are trying to get you to do something, roll up your sleeve. Maybe not a permanent tattoo. Mom and dad, I'm not encouraging that. Maybe with a little marker. Say, no, I'm the king's kid. I'm marked. I'm the king's kid. And I don't need to go along with you. I serve the true king and I don't need to go down that trail with you. Mom and dad, be proud of who you are in Christ. As a single adult, go and be proud of who you are in Christ. Celebrate the fact that you're the king's kids. Isn't that awesome? I can tell. Man, it's rainy outside, isn't it? But God says there's flourishing in my presence. You should be proud. Because here's what I know about God. Towards you and towards me. He's proud to be called your father. Saying, I'm always going to have your back. I'm never going to leave you. Or forsake you. In, in Ephesians, in Hebrews, it seems to speak that Jesus brags within the company of the saints about you. He speaks about you with great love and tenderness and care. Your heavenly Father adores you. 
Unlike so many of us who don't brag on our kids enough, he brags on us to everybody who would listen. So with that, here's the question to end the day. Are you willing to call him king? Are you willing to come and to say to Jesus, you're my king? I'm willing to give up all allegiances to every other king, every other ruler in my life, even my own self-determined rule. I'm willing to give it up. I'm willing to bend the knee. I'm willing to come, and I'm willing to enter through this one door, through Christ himself, to give my life to him today. Because I don't know what will happen today. I don't know uh, what the span of our lives will be, but I know this. It doesn't matter if we know Christ. He is the first and he is the last. He numbers our days and he has us. And he says, what can separate you from the love of Christ? Can anything? No. He said, you're safe in me. So I guess today the question would be for all of us, are you willing to bend the knee? O come, O come to Emmanuel. Let's pray.